happiness.info. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Our mission is for every man, woman and child to be empowered with the knowledge of how to be happy. The goal of this show is to introduce you to the people and ideas that will help you live truly fulfilling lives. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Dan Siegel. Dan is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, a clinical professor of psychiatry, an award-winning educator and an internationally acclaimed author who has not one, not two, but five New York Times bestselling books under his name. Amongst these are Brainstorm, The Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain, Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence, and Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. He's the Executive Director of the Mindsight Institute and has lectured for the King of Thailand, Pope John Paul II, Google University, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. That is some resume. Thank you so much, Dan, for being here. Duncan, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. When you were 19, you spent your days looking for an enzyme that would explain why salmon could go from fresh water to salt water and survive. What were you hoping to find from this research? Why? What, what motivated that? Well, I mean, there's so many ways of answering the question. On the surface, it was that I was fascinated with how life worked and to understand the basic units of life, you know, which in biology are molecules, I thought was pretty cool. Uh, but I also was madly in love with fish. And I thought if I could study fish, uh, that would be really fascinating. And the question that was in the lab that was, I was working in was, you know, why is it that salmon can go from this freshwater environment? I had freshwater tanks at home and go saltwater, which I had never, you know, raised saltwater fish. So I thought, well, okay, that's great. I love fish, love aquariums, and I can study these molecules of life. And so that's what got me to do it. I think on a deeper level, I was really interested in how people change, you know, and uh, wanted to know about the process of unfolding. So this is like how a little baby salmon that hatches goes through a process of development. So I was just kind of fascinated with development. So that was, I don't think I could have articulated that as a 19 year old, but I think that's, uh, that's what I was feeling. Yeah. What I found really interesting was not just that, but so that's where you're spending your days. But then in the evenings, you're working for a suicide prevention service. So you would be the yeah. one at the end of the phone when someone, you know, maybe even had like, a gun to their head and you were 19 years old. How, how are you able to deal with that sort of pressure? Like when we're 19, we're trying to kind of figure out who we are as ourselves. So being that sort of guidance, that person to, to help other people, that, that, that balance between day and night. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting you're pointing that out, Duncan, because I think as a young teenager, I was, you know, really interested in lots of things, but really driven a lot by logic. You know, I, I had a very scientific way of thinking about things as a, as a youth. And, and so there I was in the lab, but um, I, for some reason, decided actually to be on a ballroom dance team. And I remember once going to the rehearsal for the dance uh, that we were, we were practicing and on the on the on the telephone pole was a, um, you know, a thing saying, do you want to learn how to work on a suicide prevention service? And I had never thought of it, but I just saw it on a pole. Right. And something inside of me in my heart said, you know, something you ought to expand your horizons and try that. So it was just a weird feeling literally in my chest, in my heart that said this feels right. And I remember when I was training in that, I I I said and even in the training, I even said it out loud. I'm not going to be able to help people. I, I don't have the skills. I don't know what to do. And uh, they said, well, we'll train you. Don't worry. We'll train you. Cause I was there at the training. So we had this intensive training and then there I was, 
you know, doing the enzyme studies for the salmon study, uh, doing the ballroom dance stuff, and then working at night, as you're saying, on the suicide prevention service. And somehow, this is going to sound odd, they all felt like the same thing. Like, if a person was on a phone call in a suicidal crisis, there was some way where I needed to learn how to dance with them, you know, in some way where I honored where they were at, like you honor a partner in ballroom dancing, but also because they're in crisis, give them hope that we can somehow through our connection, find another way for them to develop. And there comes the development of the salmon. So it just, it, it was something I never thought I'd be able to do. And, uh, and I ended up, you know, really getting into it in a big way. So I ended up being like a supervisor for the, the phone, uh, uh, re recipients, you know, and, and, um, uh, it, it was just an opening to a whole way of feeling your way toward connecting with people and about emotions and emotional connection and hope and despair. And so it was just something beyond scientific logic, you know, it was just an immersion in relational connection and really bringing, um, life right there in its barest form when someone calls and says, I can't do this anymore. And, and you don't deny that to them. You really try to understand it, to feel it, to sense it. And then in the connection, give them a way to, uh, to think that it's maybe good to live. It's, in, it's interesting that you're saying how you can see them as you were seeing them, not as separate things, but all as kind of, yeah, the same thing. I got, it reminded me of a few years back, maybe four or five years ago, I was reading a book called the art of learning by a guy called Josh Waitzkin. And he was, he, he was the guy who there was, um, there was a film called um, searching for Bobby Fisher about a chess champion. And it was based on his life. So he was a, a chess protege. Um, but he, in it, he's talking about how he would be off traveling. He'd be reading sort of Walden Thoreau, like, and he'd be reading philosophy and then he'd be doing chess. And then he'd have all these completely separate um, interests, but actually they were kind of one. So the philosophy and the books were informing the way he thought about chess. And when he was reading those books, he was actually looking at them, but with his chess mind. And so everything just merged into one another, these, these separate things. So when you're talking about ballroom dancing, uh, suicide prevention, salmon, like you couldn't on the surface think of more different, different things. But actually that's, that's interesting hearing you talk about it like that. That's really fascinating, Duncan. Yeah, you know, I'm learning a lot. This is like a therapy session for me. Thank you. It's a, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I think um, even when you mentioned these different books, and my kids sometimes, who are adults now, but they sometimes ask me, you know, why, how do you write all these different books? They're all kind of from the same thread from what you're talking about in my adolescence, like, who are we? What is connection really all about? We're here, we're alive. Why are we alive? You know, why do we think it's good to stay alive once we're here alive? And those fundamental questions, I think I was asking as a late adolescent, later, you know, through my teens and my early 20s. Um, and when it was absent, like in medical school, I ultimately dropped out for a while because that looking for, in a sense, the deep essence of life. Some people might call it the soul. Some people might call it your emotional center. Um you know, this feeling of something being very real, even if it's what in science we call subjective, it's probably the most important thing, even from a scientific point, point of view now, the most important thing is your inner subjective experience. And there's nowhere to put that 
except in the word mind. So I was trained, you know, in neuroscience by a guy named David Hubel. And he won the Nobel Prize when I was in medical school with David. And, you know, the science that David taught about the brain was about how the experience that a brain has changes its structure. So I learned that I must have been 20, I don't know, three at the time, something like that. So I went very young to medical school when I dropped out and really was struggling with what to do because I couldn't stand the lack of empathy and compassion that I saw in my professors. And I didn't want to become a professional like that. So I thought of maybe I'd be like, a, I don't know what, you know, I'd be like a salmon fisherman. I actually went to Vancouver Island to do that. Then I thought maybe I'd, I don't know, be a dancer, but I didn't have the body for a dancer. Then I thought I'd be a choreographer, but I didn't really care that much about the look of dance. I cared about how it felt. So I thought I'd starve to death. So I went through all this whole journey. In fact, the people who I encountered then just contacted me like two weeks ago. And, and it was my old girlfriend who was a ballet dancer. And she said, I found all your letters to me from when you were 23. And I said, oh, my God. She goes, do you want to see them? But I'm not going to give them to you. I'll let you see them. So I just finished reading them. And it was fascinating, you know, to see the same questions I'm still asking now. I was asking, like, why are we here? What are, what, what's, the, what's the mind and all this stuff? So, you know, all these books and all this journey has been trying to address that question in a collaborative way, you know, looking at dancers, looking at people who do studies of molecules or looking at people who meditate or people who are working in the clinical world or, you know, parenting or all these things. They're all really the same thing. What is the mind? Because I think it's much more than just brain activity. And then what is it? And then the whole exciting idea of one component of mind is consciousness, you know, and so that's become really amazing to work with that. And especially, you know, during the pandemic, these questions, it turns out, are really relevant to how do we cultivate resilience and find meaning as things collapse around us and the disruption that's here. And then how is, do we as a human family ask some questions about how do we develop, you know, so we transition from the way we were before the pandemic to not just business as usual, but to a new way of living in terms of racial justice, in terms of realizing how interconnected we are and realizing we need to protect the environment. I heard you I heard you use the term disorganized attachment quite a lot. And can you give me an example of what this is? Yeah, well, that's a whole area. I mean, you know, I'm trained uh, after uh, medical school when I started pediatrics and then went to psychiatry. I decided to be a researcher. So I, I became trained in something called attachment research. Attachment is a word, you know, that is used in the science field for parent-child relationships or other caregivers who care for young children. And so disorganized attachment is one of four kinds of attachment that we study that, you know, in some studies, they would say it's in about 15% of the general population. Other studies say it's more like 30. So it's not rare. And it's a form of attachment, a form of relationship where a parent is the source of terror for a child. Uh, it can be in severe ways like abuse and neglect. And it can be in also subtle ways, like someone coming home drunk repeatedly that frightens a kid, even if they're not directly you know, hurting them by physically injuring them or sexually abusing them or emotionally abusing them. So that can be terrifying or domestic violence, which is now increasing with the pandemic. 
So unfortunately, we're probably going to see more disorganized attachment. Now, the sad thing about a disorganized attachment and the positive thing about it both are that children are very you know, responsive to the environment. So when they're terrified, it's a biological paradox for lots of different reasons I talk about in the different books. But the bottom line is attachment is supposed to be about being safe, seen and soothed so that you can be secure. But when you don't have safety and when there's a terror experience you have from your caregiver, part of you wants to get away from the source of terror. It's a very deep part of the brain. But another part wants to go toward the attachment figure to protect you. So if the attachment figure, like your parent, is the source of terror, it's a paradox because part of your brain says go toward them. Another part says get away from the same individual. We have one body. What are you supposed to do? So your mind fragments and a fragmented mind is experienced in something called dissociation, which uh, it really means disassociation. So the usually continuous kind of flowing things of emotions and thoughts and memories and consciousness and all that becomes fragmented. And so the common finding with disorganized attachment is uh, sadly dissociation. Now, that's the sad part of it because it's very disruptive to balancing your emotions and having mutually rewarding relationships. So these kids have a real hard time in life. The positive side is because we're so responsive to the world, um, you know, you can do either therapy or new relationships or repair, even from the, the terrifying caregiver who can come back and say, I'm really sorry I did that. I'm going to really try to stop my problem. I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm not going to be involved in domestic violence. I'm going to, you know, I'm so sorry. Let's work it out so that there is a growth, a repair of these ruptures. that's so important to highlight. But even if your caregiver doesn't do that, therapy looks like it can be really healing. So dissociation is a very healable uh, uh, challenge we have in, in the way the mind functions. So, uh, you know, if you want to, I wrote a graduate school textbook called The Developing Mind now in its third edition. So if you want like the deep, deep, deep science dive that reviews all of this, you know, that textbook, you know, shows graduate students, you know, how does a relationship affect the structure of the brain and when it's terrifying how does that lead to the experience of dissociation and then how does therapy then repair that ruptured set of connections in the brain so that the mind can function in a more associated integrated is what we would say way so i've heard and um, I think some, a lot of our listeners might have, but um, some of them might not have. But I've, I've, we've heard a fair bit about mirror neurons. But it was interesting hearing you describe them saying mirror neurons could just as easily be called sponge neurons. Um, yeah. In, in, in light of what you're talking about. Why, why sponge neurons? Duncan, I just got to say, first of all, that you took time to read this material is amazing. That you have an incredible mind that uh, sponges it in and and really sees the relevance and the points of all this is just mind-blowing so i just want to take a moment just to honor you and um you know that that doesn't always happen and it's it's so beautiful to to see this and i'm glad it's interesting Thank um you. yeah you know the the italians uh, some of them have written books for the series you know i have a series of professional books uh, now 75 books that you know that i've overseen the publication of and and one of them is by the guy who discovered mirror neurons and in Italian, it made kind of sense the way mirror neuron is. I can't say it in Italian. But, you know, when we were talking together, you know, I, I was joking about the function of a mirror neuron system in the brain 
is really to soak in what you're perceiving from someone else, not so much to mirror it exactly like a mirror, but to soak it in in two fundamental ways. So it's like a sponge. And that's when I said to him, I said, you know, you could have called him sponge. He says, yeah, yes, you could do that, you know, and it was really beautiful. And um, uh, Vittorio Galesi is his beautiful book in our in our series. Um, so sponge neurons, which are formerly called mirror neurons, what do they do? It's a set of systems, really. It's not a single neuron, but it's a although there are ways of studying single neurons in these systems. But what they do is basically two things. They're perceiving what's going on. And then they're either allowing you to imitate behavior or simulate a state that is create inside of you a state that you're, in a way, sponging in from someone else. So way before you would ever mirror it back, you're actually taking it in and sponging it in. That's why I would call them sponge neurons. And, you know, so like, for example, if you're with a friend who's, you know, maybe seeming a little out of it and depressed perhaps, and you start feeling a heaviness in your chest or an uneasy feeling in your gut, the sponge neurons, the mirror neurons would be perceiving that even beneath your awareness. So you might just go, wow, I'm having this weird feeling in my chest and a heaviness in my, my, my whole body. My, my, my shoulders are collapsing. My intestines feel a little uneasy. What's going on with me? You might say, but then you go, oh, yeah, yeah, I heard from Duncan there are sponge neurons. Could I be, could I be, it's a question, not a, not a declaration. Could I be sponging in something from the environment? Because with some MIT professors, Otto Scharmer and Meta Bola, who's an assistant there, and, and um, Peter Sange, we're studying generative social fields. Social field would be like looking at how the field we're in, even now you and, and I right now, you and me, it would be, anyway, us, you know, there'd be a field that is creating your sponge neurons soak in the feeling of the field. That's what I think. But at a minimum, they're soaking in the, the signals from another person. And then you may say, oh, maybe Dan is feeling sad. And then you might say to me, Dan, you know, I just have a funny feeling in my chest. I, I don't know exactly what it is. I'm just wondering, are you doing okay? And now I might start crying. And I may, need, may not have been aware that I something terrible happened, but I wanted to ignore it. And I felt overwhelmed and depressed. But you're such a good friend, your sponge neurons, your mirror neurons, sponge it in. So you're feeling your own unique feelings. This is why I don't like really the term mirror, because a mirror is like the exact replica. No, you're having Duncan's heart and Duncan's intestines with everything that's you sponge it in. It becomes part of you. And that's actually how we become a we. Right. You don't have to become me like a mirror for us to really join through the system. So it was just a linguistic issue that. These wonderful Italians called it mirror neurons, which probably has a romantic, fun way to say mirror in, in Italian. But I would prefer to call them sponge neurons because that's kind of what they do. And then your simulation is you're feeling these feelings in your body. And then you might even do behaviors like you might start crying. Or if I were having anger, you might say something really angry and you go, I don't even know why I said that. Well, because your sponge neurons got you to imitate the um behavior I might be doing, or even take the simulation of the anger and turn it into a behavior. So, so that's what they do. Yeah, it's incredible. Actually, I was sitting in a room with a guy who discovered them, uh, who's also Italian, Marco Iacoboni, but uh, works at UCLA. We were in a meeting when he actually did the first, with Yitzhak Fried, the first study of open skull surgery, got permission 
to impale single neurons in a human brain because the other guys had done it in monkeys and show this was wasn't hurting anybody, but show that like a huge percentage, like about 25 percent of our brain is a social sponge neuron. They would call it mirror neuron brain in this fascinating ways they did the study. But he, we were doing a think tank when he came in to the room, like you had to pull them off the ceiling. We found them. We found because everyone would say, oh, they're in monkeys. They're not in humans. They're in monkeys, not in humans. And and Marco Iacoboni, I-A-C-O-B-O-N-I with Yitzhak Fried, they were the first to show that they exist in humans. So uh, these are real systems. And it's better to think of them as networks that sponge in and, and have us connect with each other. We are super social creatures. One thing I found um, that's fascinating, by the way, one, one thing I found really interesting about was hearing you talk about adolescence, because often they get uh, a bit of a hard rep, uh, 13 to like, you know, up until like early 20s. But um, there's two big things that we know happening in the brains of adolescents. One of them is that the brain begins pruning itself. Like, wh- why is it pruning? Yeah, it's a great question. And that finding, Duncan, you're just you blowing me away. It's so, so great. You know, that question is exactly the fundamental question about adolescence, because the old way of thinking was, okay, you know, the brain is put together by genes. Okay, fine. That was one way of thinking. Then we realized, and this is what David got the Nobel Prize for. Oh, no, the brain is also shaped by experience. Cool. That's how we learn. That's not but but David Hubel and Torsten Weasel showed, you know, how it happened. Okay, fine. So then what they said, well, how does this brain develop over time? And people said, well, in childhood, you're learning, learning, learning. Then probably after adolescence, you just stop learning or something, which is wrong. But it was kind of the thing that people were saying. So then uh, uh, different groups, you know, NIMH um, were studying this uh, and also at UCLA. And what they found in a number of centers, in, in addition to those centers, that the brain of an adolescent was developing in a very different way than a child and a very different way than an adult. So that was like, oh, wow. Well, you might say, well, duh, you know, look how different adolescents are. Something must be going on differently in them, you know. And and the first thing that was a shocker was that the brain started removing connections that had been established in childhood. So basically, the brain has a fundamental unit called a neuron. And there are supportive cells, too. Let's just focus on the neurons now. But you have a, around 100 billion of them and their connections to each other. Number, an average number of connections is about 10,000 connections for a given neuron. So that's trillions and trillions of connections. So the way you learn is by changing the connections among these neurons. So let's just leave it at that. And so for a child to soak in the world and learn from adults and their peers they're making new connections, making new connections, making new connections. And when you study the way a child's brain works, it's got a lot of connections. Okay, fine. And you're a generalist as a kid. You know, you need to learn how to, you know, speak and you need to learn how to read and all these things. You learn, 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 learn. Fine. Once adolescence hits, and that's a whole different question of, it's different from puberty, but it's around, let's just say, 12. So we're now getting to the second dozen years of life. Um, the brain, instead of continually making more and more connections, which it continues to do, but it does something else now. Now it's starting to remove connections that it already established, and even some neurons are being removed. Well, this is called, like in a garden, pruning, or the other word is parcellation, but you don't need to worry about that. Now, the pruning process allows the brain 
to differentiate, to make different its different circuits. So if you think about the generalist of a child, you know, everything is there. And, and, and when a child solves a problem, it's using energy all over the place. But for an adolescent, like, let's say, from 12 to 15, when the pruning process is really big, they're basically carving out the circuits they really, really need so they're more efficient. And that differentiation of circuitry is a use it or lose it condition. So when I teach in middle school and high school, I say to the kids, I said, you don't, I know you don't really want to listen to adults and you don't even need to listen to me, but you can listen to yourself because what you do during these adolescent years, because it's a use it or lose it brain principle, you're going to be able to cultivate things in your life. So if you want to play a musical instrument, do it now. You know, if you not, don't just play a video game, video games can do some really good things, but do that and play musical music. Be with your friends as best you can. Now with the pandemic, it's hard, but communicate with your friends, read books, stimulate all the different networks of your brain. No one can do that but you. Where attention goes, neural firing flows and neural connection grows is what I tell them. And then they get all whacked out when they say, oh, my God. I'm pruning, I'm pruning, I'm freaking out, I'm pruning. I said, yeah, but you can influence which circuits are lost. So if you only want your right hand with a mouse to be the only network you work on, go for it. You know, good for you or good on you, I guess, as they say in Australia. You know, however, if you want to build things up, like my son, Alex Siegel, he's a musician. At 12, he started playing guitar. He hasn't put a guitar down since. And if you listen to his music, you'll feel it that he kept his music networks alive, you know, and our daughter, Maddie Siegel, she does all the drawings in my books. You know, she was an artist and was constantly doing art, which, you know, we support all that stuff. So, so they kept those networks going. Now that's the differentiation process. There's a fundamental push in, in development called integration and integration has two components. One is differentiation, which needs the pruning. The second is linkage. And amazingly, after around 15, now you start to lay down the linkages that become much stronger with laying down what's called myelin, where the conduction speed is about 100 times faster. And then the resting time between firing the neurons is about 30 times quicker. So when you multiply 30 times 100, you get 3,000. So when you lay down myelin, your linkages make you, in your timing and coordination, 3,000 times more effective. So ultimately, the great purpose of pruning is to differentiate, but then you're linking better, so you're making a more integrated brain. And so this is my pitch, you know, for adolescents, and, and I do this in the book Brainstorm, you know, is that they're in charge of their integration process of development, and they can take charge of it. And listen, it's amazing when you give empowerment to adolescents like that, which is what the book tries to do and teach them how to integrate their brain in a better way. They're fantastic because when you minimize their capacity, they rise to the lowest level of your expectation. Absolutely. But when you, you know what I mean? So that's the story of that's why there's the pruning mm -hmm. and it happens in all sorts of species. Um, uh, but anyway, you, you, the good news is it's, it's a good process. So someone once uh, said to me that, tolerating ambiguity is a sign of some of the best human brain health. Do you, what would you feel about that statement? Yeah, I think it's a beautiful statement. Really? Um, you know, 
when you go into the mechanisms of awareness or look at a common thing that's talked about, about mindfulness or mindful awareness, John O'Donohue was an Irish Catholic priest and poet and philosopher, and he and I used to teach together and talk about presence, you know. Um, when you drop into presence, when you drop into this open, receptive awareness, basically you drop out of pre-existing um, uh, views and beliefs and you, you become super receptive rather than just perceiving things that you already believe. So ambiguity means that something is happening and you don't know exactly what's going on. And in fact, there's a term called VUCA, V-U-C-A, that's really worth uh, knowing about that initially came from the military. Then the journalists started using it. it's volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. So these times are VUCA times. They're volatile, meaning they change really fast. They're uncertain, meaning every morning we wake up these days, who knows what's going to be happening, right? Complex means even if you read every newspaper that exists, there's so many different things going on all at once. And it's a nonlinear complexity, meaning little things happen and you cannot predict what's going on. So that's the complexity. And ambiguous means even if someone says, oh, did you know X? You're not certain. Does X mean this or does it mean that? Right. So even if you just nailed it down to one thing within all that complexity. I don't really know what that means. So how do we tolerate that? Right. How do we tolerate that? Well, in, in Brooklyn, where uh, our daughter uh, used to live, you know, there's a public library and on the public library, there is a quote from an artist in the entryway. And it says this, having abandoned the flimsy fantasy of certainty, I decided to wander, right? And I wish I could remember her name. Uh, uh, it's probably in this book somewhere here. But having abandoned the flimsy fantasy of certainty, I decided to wander. So this question about ambiguity, Duncan, is, you know, we need an illusion of certainty to feel safe. That's kind of the way the brain is. The brain's an anticipation machine. It wants to anticipate the immediate next of now so I can be safe, right? So here we are now, what's happening next? Sure. What's happening next? So it's not really about planning, it's about anticipating, right? So, well, okay, the sun is gonna shine or Duncan's gonna ask me a question or you know, what's gonna happen next? So we, we actually construct our own illusion, really. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a perceptual you know, mirage of certainty because nothing is really certain. So. That's the flimsy fantasy. When you drop out of it, you can let your life wander. And so I agree completely with the notion of dropping into presence. We have a mathematical view of it that's fun to talk about. And we can get into it if you want. But when you drop into that spaciousness of receptive awareness, you don't have to be uh, having the flimsy fantasy of certainty. You let yourself wander and be open to what is. And amazingly, when you drop into that space, you're probably tapping into um, a whole realm of life that I think if people got access to, we'd find more connection with each other and we find more peace within our own subjective experience. And we can talk about what that realm is, uh, but I think it's real. And I think it's really something that these mind trainings allow you to cultivate the ability to, so other people might use the word, have acceptance. 
to be accepting of what is, even if you can't determine its exact meaning. And that's what ambiguity is all about. You know, interconnection is what the pandemic has taught us. And whether you look at social justice issues, which are a violation of honoring interconnection, or environmental issues, which is a violation of honoring interconnection, um, this pandemic is waking us up to the reality of interconnection. Now, once you really see that, you go, well, why haven't we recognized this before? Well, certainty, the opposite, apparently, of ambiguity, is you say, I know exactly what it is. Well, for you to know exactly what it is or to control it is, you got to push away interconnection. you got to say, no, I am me and I'm going to deal with this and this, and I'm not really connected to anything else. I can control, right? I can control my life. Not, oh my God, I'm a part of a system that is so beautiful and so wondrous, but I don't own it and I don't control it. Well, that's a very different state of mind of letting life happen, letting love connect us, rather than saying, I'm in control. I determine who I love and who I don't love. You know, I mean, I, whereas, you know, and love is a very interesting thing to get into because it's, you know, when I think about the suicide prevention work when I was a teenager or now the work with the pandemic, you know, love is not something you own. It's something you tap into and let emerge from these bodies we're given about 100 years to live in. And it connects us. It's a vital force. And I did 10,000 people in a survey of the Wheel of Awareness now, a lot more than that. But in the <clears throat> in the wheel, what you see is love is what emerges in open awareness. Love, interconnection, and this receptive awareness are like three threads of a singular fabric of reality. And I never thought I'd ever be talking about love as a scientist. But as a scientist, having done this survey of all these people doing this way where you distinguish pure awareness in the hub of a wheel from the thing you're aware of on the rim. And this comes up again and again and again. Uh, one simple uh, uh, um, example of that was I, was I was asked to go to a parliament in another country um, to teach this material and the wheel of awareness. They were having a lot of tension about issues of immigration and stuff like that. And one of the parliamentarians, after we did the wheel, came to me during the break and he said, um, you know, I didn't share during the sharing time after the wheel. I said, yeah, I noticed. He goes, well, do you want to know why? I said, uh, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd like to know why. Um, and he leans close to me and he goes, you know that part where you bend the spoke around right into the hub itself? I said, yeah, yeah, I know that part. And now his voice changes. He's got tears in his eyes. And he goes, when I got into that pure awareness, when I get into that hub, I have never in my whole life felt so much love before. I was connected to everyone and everything. Now he's crying. So there's this pause between us. I said, well, wow, thank you for sharing. And I go, you didn't want to share that with your colleagues? And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. And he points over to them having a snack in the other part of the room. And he goes, they would think I was weak if I talked about love. So there's this silence between us. We're looking at each other. And then I said, can I ask you a question? And he goes, yeah. I said, 
So I understand you didn't want to look weak in front of your colleagues. He goes, oh, no, no, no. I said, but are you, are you leaving love out of your reasoning when you establish federal policy? When you're making national law, do you leave love out of the reasoning? And then his eyes get really, really big. He wags his finger at me, and then he runs over to his colleagues and starts talking to them. But I wasn't in on that conversation. I would only hope that he and others who could access this can realize that love is not um, a weak thing. It's the strongest thing we've got. Love is this vital force that connects us to all living beings. It honors the interconnection of all things. And in many ways, if that parliamentarian is kind of an example, it's been kind of written out of the way we're supposed to live with each other, not just in politics, but in everyday life. So um, it's been an amazing journey to just come to listen deeply to what people uh, experience when they, you know, drop into this open awareness where ambiguity is welcome and love is what fills their experience. You you use the phrase like, um, I'm a scientist. I never expected to be thinking or like learning about love. And that reminded me a couple of years ago, I interviewed a guy called Steve Farber and he said, something similar because he he's like he said he was just looking at what was the thing that separated good to like to great leaders what's the thing that made great leaders great and he came he realized it was love and he said a similar thing he goes i'm a business guy i'm i'm looking at it from a consulting point of view i want to look at you know the thing and he's like i wish there was something else he was he was looking for something else and he said the thing that separated the great leaders and the great companies and it it was love and that's what made you know that's what made the difference and he was he was surprised and wow it's exactly the same thing you know duncan i am so surprised uh i uh, you know as a science person and also someone who's trying to push the boundaries of fields like you know clinical work and stuff and education you know about the mind you know, I'm trying to be very conservative, very careful, very cautious. And, you know, the developing mind is a textbook, you know, is this graduate school textbook. So like I'm right for science stuff. But when you're a scientist, your job is to, you know, listen deeply to what's going on. Try to make sense of it. Always doubt yourself and question the assumptions you might be making. And, you know, when I had 18 interns work with me to revise the second edition to the third edition, the new one, you know, I told them, you know, we're here to disprove what was said in the second edition. They go, oh, you misspoke. You mean prove? I said, no, no, no. Disprove. Find me one study that goes against this. So the idea is to always question and doubt and reframe. And, you know, but when I did the 10,000 person survey, it came up over and over and over again across continents, across backgrounds. And it wasn't like I, I, there was any kind of setup for that. I don't talk about love or, you know, that. so but then it became really clear to ignore love and not to highlight love. You know, um, I think we do it to our detriment. And I think if people can live in a, a community like that, which might be Earth. You know, we might have a very different way of living with each other, with all living beings on this planet and. That's my deepest hope for 
the, the conversation we're having here and, and the conversations we can have all around the planet now that the disruption in, in business as usual can wake us up to say, well, how did we do this before the pandemic? And how can we consider perhaps a new way to wander, to embrace ambiguity and uncertainty? Because here's the amazing thing. Uncertainty, while people may try to avoid it, you know, what happens is the reality is the synonym for uncertainty is freedom and possibility. So if ambiguity is uncertainty, which I think it is, then embracing that is an entree to possibility and freedom. And that's, I think, the hope and the potential, the promise for the future. I'm not going to, I'm going to leave it just there. That was beautiful. How can people find out more about you and your work? Well, they can listen to this. I guess they've already listened to us in this conversation. You did a beautiful job of reviewing stuff. Um, you can go to my website. That's probably the best place to start. D-R for doctor and then Dan, D-A-N, Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L.com. We have a link to our institute, the Mindsight Institute. And we have this weekly community meeting, which I invite everyone to join. It's, it's you know, fully available. It's free. And there's a whole community of conversations like this that we're having there. Uh, so that's the pep we up. Uh, gathering and there's a whole Mui community you can join and there's all sorts of courses you can do and the books you can dive into and all sorts of things uh, that are available there you can get on the website and I will link that up and I'll link up everything that you've mentioned during this interview you mentioned the wheel of awareness I'll, I'll, I'll put it all uh, underneath the uh, the interview Dan thank you oh, yeah. so much I really really My appreciate pleasure. you coming on it's been a, it's been a great honor so thank you for saying yes and for answering all my questions Thank you, Duncan. It's really an honor and I look forward to future connections. Thank you so much for listening. This has been episode 137. You've been listening to Happiness and starting from today, every single Monday morning, we'll be releasing a brand new episode. So be sure to check back in. You can find out the show notes and everything else at happiness.info. We'll see you next time. Happiness.info.